From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A survivor of the 2016 shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando says he understands the pain people are feeling in Colorado Springs right now. And the hardest part, he says, will be once the cameras are off and the media attention fades. That's the time when you not only lean on each other, you're certainly going to need community to get through this. You also lean on folks like us who've been through this before. Later, what role did abortion play in the midterm elections? Then, the winter holiday season kicks off this week with Thanksgiving. And one of the hottest trends in drinking right now is not drinking. We'll get a taste of the so-called mocktails movement. And I think that's one of the cool parts about where we're at nowadays is that you actually have a lot of selection that you didn't have before. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Derek Rump, a bartender living his dream. Raymond Green Vance, a 22-year-old known for his bright smile. Kelly Loving, a transgender woman who'd helped teach other trans women how to be resilient. Ashley Paw, a mother of an 11-year-old. Daniel Aston, a performer who loved 80s music and dancing. The five people who lost their lives when a gunman opened fire inside Club Q in Colorado Springs just before midnight Saturday. Colorado Springs Police Chief Adrian Vasquez. You know, too often society loses track of the victims of these sad and tragic events in all the talk about the suspect. We strive to give the victims the dignity and respect that they deserve, as well as shine the light of public attention on the victims. In addition to those killed, Officials now say 19 people were hurt, down from 25. Most of them were shot, including one survivor who was struck seven times. Police say the mass shooting would have been far worse had it not been for the quick actions of two people, Thomas James and Richard Fierro. Here's Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. I had the opportunity before I came here to talk to Richard Fierro identified as one of the two heroes that subdued the uh, suspect in this case. And in my opinion, I think the opinion of everyone involved uh, saved a lot of lives. I have never encountered a person who had engaged in such heroic actions that was so humble about it. He simply said to me, I was trying to protect my family. They tackled the suspect, striking him with his own gun. He's in custody at an undisclosed hospital for investigation of first-degree murder. But as the investigation continues, that could change. Here's Michael Allen, the district attorney for the 4th Judicial District, which includes Colorado Springs. So don't be surprised when you see a different list of charges when we finally file formal charges with the court. Once the suspect is released from the hospital, we will have a first appearance scheduled with the court. That should happen in the next couple of days, I would guess although that is still to be determined by his care providers at the hospital. That appearance will be by video, so he will be in the jail and be appearing by video. We will advise the suspect at that time of the arrest charges and his bond status. He is being held without bond, so he will not have the opportunity to be bonded out. 
Within a few days of that first appearance is when we will return to the courtroom and file the formal charges with the court. As the investigation continues, Colorado Springs police spokeswoman Pamela Castro invites other victims and other witnesses to come forward. We know there were more people at the club and we really want to speak to them. They could be victims of a crime. And so we are looking to talk to them and identify them if at all possible. The FBI has been a great partner through this and they have set up a tip line for us. Anybody with information, if they were there, they have video, they were driving by, uh, they might know information about the suspect. Anything at all, no matter how small or insignificant they believe it might be, could we please call and let us know about that? That phone number is 1-800-CALL-FBI. And they have dedicated people who are there uh, to talk to anybody who calls in. Club 23, a popular gathering place for the LGBTQ community, remains closed until further notice. There's a makeshift memorial outside and people have been stopping by daily to honor those touched by the violence. Here again is Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. I would also like to thank our community, the whole Colorado Springs community and the whole Pikes Peak region the outpouring of support they've shown. I can't tell you how many people have reached out from the city, our region, and frankly, from across the country, expressing their love and support for Colorado Springs and the Club Q community. We've posted a list of resources to get support or to offer support at CPR.org. Once again, the names of those killed. Daniel Aston, Kelly Loving, Ashley Paw, Derek Rump. Raymond Green Vance. There will be vigils across Colorado this week. On Sunday, people gathered in Orlando, Florida to show solidarity with the Colorado Springs shooting victims and their families. In 2016, Pulse Nightclub, a nightclub that also serves the LGBTQ community, was the scene of another horrific mass shooting. Brandon Wolf, who lives in Orlando, survived that shooting, and that experience prompted him to become a full-time activist. Wolf works for Equality Florida, an LGBTQ civil rights organization. He also works in gun violence prevention. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Brandon, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you about uh, what Colorado Springs can expect. You know, the shooting in Orlando was about six years ago. Can you talk about what Colorado Springs is in store for? Yeah, part of the reason that this breaks my heart when it happens over and over again is because I know uh, what folks are going to suffer through, not just for days or weeks, but but for the rest of their lives. Obviously, in the beginning, uh, there's a hurricane of media and public attention, a lot of resources to send on the community all at once. I would encourage people to take advantage of those resources, get access to the mental health resources you need, um, the financial support that you need. Don't be shy about asking for it. And then, you know, the hard part probably is when the cameras go away and and people go back to their daily lives. But that's the time when you not only lean on each other, uh, you're certainly going to need community to get through this. You also lean on on folks like us who've been through this before, 
communities like Orlando, organizations like Equality Florida and others, we're here to help, we're here to support you 100% of the way, not just the next days and weeks, as I mentioned, but in the years to come. Do you plan to come to Colorado and talk to some of the victims and to the community? We'll see. You know, I've done some work with a group called Survivors Empowered in the past, which uh, was actually started by the parents of a victim of the Aurora movie theater shooting. And one of the things that they do is mobilize survivors like me to to these, you know, tragedies to try to provide whatever support or healing I can. If I can make it out there, um, I would love to. Obviously, would love to connect with people. We've got some folks locally that we're talking to to help get the right resources to people. How has your life changed since the shooting in Orlando? I know you've been propelled into activism, but can you talk a little bit about that and how it's affected you? Yeah, my life is totally different. You know, there's a lot of things that happen when you go through a tragedy like that. Obviously, there's the trauma of having been there and escaped narrowly with your life. You get to live with the consequences of that forever. But I also went to the club that night with my best friends, Drew and Juan, and left without them. And so, you know, a lot of my, the last six and a half years has been about healing from losing chosen family, figuring out how to move on without them. And, and probably one of the biggest takeaways I've had is that purpose can be incredibly powerful. And I've, I've found a new purpose in helping to share their stories, keep their legacies alive. And so, you know, while my life was slinging coffee behind a Starbucks espresso machine before, it's now dedicated full time to try and make the world a little better in their honor. You were able to get out of the club. Were you near your friends? Uh, so I was not near my friends. My friends were dancing with each other uh, on the dance floor, which was the shooter's first destination inside the club. I had stepped away to use the bathroom. I uh, was joined by a group of like 10 or 12 folks who also came in the bathroom to try and hide. We realized that there was nowhere to hide. And so we made a break for an exit. Uh, We were very lucky because uh, that bathroom was one that became a hostage situation later in the evening where several other people passed away. So I was just very, very lucky to have stepped away to the bathroom and then also have made it out of the club before the shooter circled around to us. And Florida has been the center of this uh, don't say gay law that was supported by the current governor, DeSantis, who was just reelected in a landslide, likely to be a presidential candidate. Um, Can you talk about the law and how you see it in light of, you know, these shootings and what seems to be anti-gay sentiment turning into violence? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because in many ways, Florida and our governor, Ron DeSantis, have been at the center of the manufactured hysteria about LGBTQ people in this country. The Don't Say Gay law was designed to censor LGBTQ people out of classrooms. It very specifically says that there can be no classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in K through three, and that it's very restricted in grades four through 12. And so that means you know, talking about family makeups, it means families with two moms, families with two dads, Uh, those things are not appropriate anymore in the classroom to discuss. And the effect that that has is you're telling young people, you're telling people here in the state of Florida and beyond, that there's something wrong with being LGBTQ, that to be LGBTQ is something to be ashamed of and something that needs to be erased or hidden. The rhetoric that surrounded that law and the debate about it 
has only made the country more hostile toward LGBTQ people. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, that has festered across the country. You've seen uh, groups like Libs of TikTok and Moms for Liberty take that rhetoric and run with it. Uh, we've seen armed protests against drag shows. And then, of course, we see, you know, potentially violence linked to that. I know we're waiting on a motive, but it's difficult not to connect the the hostile political climate in this country toward LGBTQ people and the inevitable consequence of violence against us. Is Pulse nightclub still open? A Pulse nightclub is not open as a dancing spot, but it is, uh, it's been turned into a memorial site. There's an interim memorial on the grounds right now while they build the permanent memorial. Uh, we'll actually be there in the next 45 minutes or so hosting a vigil. Um, and it really has become hallowed ground for our community. We spend time there when we want to remember, when we want to reflect, and also when we want to sort of galvanize ourselves around uh, what we're fighting for, which is a future that our stolen loved ones would be proud of. Brandon, thanks so much. Thank you. Brandon Wolf is a survivor of the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. He still lives there and now works for Equality Florida, the state's LGBTQ advocacy organization. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. That so many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. What role did abortion play in the midterms? Now that we have a bit of distance and some data, it's a question CPR's Claire Cleveland, who covers abortion for us, set out to answer. She spoke with my co-host, Ryan Warner. While there was a lot of talk of a red wave, which didn't manifest, I understand that experts you spoke with were certain Abortion would motivate Democratic voters in particular. What was are these experts' evidence? Some of that evidence came well before Election Day. Political scientist Michelle Ferguson of CU Boulder pointed to the bump in women of reproductive age voting Democratic in the primaries mm. in Colorado. She also notes that this group was casting ballots in person here, suggesting that they were either voting for the first time and registering in person or that they wanted to make sure their vote counted. Right. The idea is you could vote by mail, but they showed up, a kind of measurement of enthusiasm. Uh, more anecdotally, this professor noticed a shift in her own students, right? Right. She said after the Dobbs draft was leaked, she had students coming up to her asking what the overturning of Roe meant for them and for the country. She said in her decades of teaching, she's struggled to get her students to pay attention to abortion as a relevant political issue, no matter how many times she told them the laws were going to change in their lifetime. The shock of Dobbs, she says, changed that. Mm. Meanwhile, inflation and the economy did end up being top of mind for voters, just not in a way that resulted in a red wave. Why might that be? What that may boil down to is voters don't sit down with a ballot and think, will I vote for abortion access or will I vote for the economy? Uh, this kind of either or. 
Right. Rather, the two are related in a way that can't be teased apart so easily. Here's what Ferguson had to say. Anybody who is thinking about inflation also understands that having an additional child is expensive and is only becoming more expensive and more untenable if you're looking at questions around like how expensive housing is, how expensive uh, childcare is. All of those things factor into wanting to have some control over when and how you are growing a family or whether you're growing a family. Where in Colorado do voters concerned about abortion seem to have made a difference? Ferguson pointed to the Senate race between Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett, who supports abortion access, and Republican Joe O'Day, who was more moderate on the issue than others in the GOP. O'Day said he supported the right to abortion up to 20 weeks, while Bennett backs Colorado's new Reproductive Health Equity Act. It protects the right to an abortion in Colorado with no gestational limits. Ferguson said O'Day's loss, I'll note by 14 points, is an example of how the GOP may want to reassess their stance on abortion. I think it really raises some questions for the Republican Party here in the state of Colorado about how can they find a pathway to statewide victories, statewide offices, when the abortion issue seems to be, uh, I would say, owned right now by Democrats. Senator Bennett ran campaign ads in the lead up to the midterms that focused on O'Day's stance on this issue. Uh, Bennett was endorsed by abortion rights advocates, including Planned Parenthood. What role did that organization in particular play in Colorado's midterms, Clear. The organization's political arm endorses candidates, including Senator Bennett, and counsels them on abortion issues. That's according to Jack Teeter, Regional Director of Government Affairs at Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. A lot of that work, especially with first-time candidates, is talking about our values and talking about their values and their experiences with reproductive health care and their views on abortion access. Abortion stigma is pervasive and it impacts all of us, including those of us who support access to legal abortion care. Teeter said it's not enough for candidates they endorse to point fingers at the opposing side. Rather, they have to have a plan and a clear vision of how they'll support reproductive rights and access. How might abortion impact future elections in Colorado? So the Reproductive Health Equity Act is in place. Again, it protects the right to an abortion in Colorado. But there are still ways that access to care is limited by Colorado law. Those are opportunities, say both of these experts, for voters to re-engage. For instance, they might seek to overturn the law that prohibits state funding for abortion care, which extends to insurance coverage for the procedure for state workers. And the issue, I gather, remains relevant as well to those who oppose abortion. Yes, anti-abortion activists will no doubt keep trying to limit or end abortion here. In Pueblo, people packed the city council chambers to protest a potential new abortion clinic. It would be only the second clinic serving the southeastern part of the state. Michelle Ferguson, the political scientist, also pointed out that, just like Roe, the Dobbs decision could someday be overturned. No matter where you stand on the abortion issue, there's always a reason to be continuing to engage in activism. Even if you think your side is winning right now, they may not be winning in another decade or two. Claire, thank you. Thank you. Claire Cleveland speaking with Ryan Warner. Claire covers issues related to abortion for us here at CPR News. It's an issue that is complex and not going away anytime soon, which is why she'd like to hear from you, Coloradans whose lives are directly affected 
whether it touches your family or is related to your work. You may email her at ccleveland at cpr.org. When we come back, ringing in the holidays without the hangover. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. One of the hottest trends in drinking these days is, well, not drinking. Not drinking alcohol, that is. Non-alcoholic beers were featured at the Great American Beer Fest last month, and the Sober Curious movement has been building for some years now. Heading into the holidays, we're bringing you recommendations from a leader of this movement in Denver, which some call the Mocktails Movement. Adam Hodak is the new CEO of Awake Denver, which opened as the city's first sober bar in 2020. It's closed temporarily while his team looks for a new space. So I met up with him and a local Mocktails fan, my guest co-taster at Adam's other restaurant, The L on Broadway. Thanks so much for doing this, Adam. Thank you so much. So we're going to taste some drinks you created and also get your picks for off-the-shelf products things people can buy at grocery stores or specialty stores. This is especially important at this time of year as we head into the holidays with lots of parties and social gatherings. Can you start by explaining how this industry has changed over the past few years? How's the landscape different now in terms of what's available compared with just a few years ago? The main difference you're gonna see is back in the day, a couple years ago, it was either you were either sober or you drank. Mm -hmm. And if all of a sudden you chose to not have a drink, you know, is something wrong? Are you sick? Are you pregnant? You know, there's this stigma attached to Mm non-drinking. Whereas many other vices in this world, if you say no to them, your friends don't go, what's wrong with you? And what you're starting to see now, I do like, you know, the sober curious movement, things like that. I think just general well-being is more or less sort of where it's coming from. It's the same way that Ten years ago, there, were, there was one vegan restaurant in all of Denver, and now there's multiple. It's just sort of that change of, you know, things don't have to always be the way they were. Mm-hmm. And so you do see a lot of higher quality products. And I think that's one of the cool parts about where we're at nowadays is that you actually have a, a lot of uh, selection that you didn't have before. Wow, you really making me think I need to up my mocktail game learning about all this. Uh, You referenced earlier vegan. Well, my husband is a vegetarian, and in some places I find that they have vegetarian dishes, but they don't really put the detail into it. It's almost (laughs) like, here you go, here's your dish, and that's for you. So do you feel like there's a lot more attention in the detail of the non-alcoholic drink now? Yeah, so I want to say it was probably closer to 2015, but 2017, I remember putting my first sort of spirit-free cocktails together. And uh, I just want to touch on the word mocktail real quick. So I, I, I personally hate that term. I think what 
more or less that came from was out of kids' drinks on menus that we've seen, you know, growing up over the many, many years. And I've heard the thing, like, we don't mock our guests, so we don't call them mocktails. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, which I think is, you know, not necessarily hitting the nail on the head. But for me, I really do care about the quality and taking care of that person in front of me. Because if somebody's enjoying what they want to enjoy, they're going to tell their friends, they're going to come back. And they're not going to feel like they're being left out. And I think that's kind of what we'll see here today or hear here today uh, is, <laughs> is uh, how you can still get a lot of flavor, a lot of quality and a lot of care without the alcohol. And I also read uh, the term zero proof drinks. Yep. Zero proof. Is another, that's another good one. I understand that you had your first sober curious period a long time ago. What happened? Yeah, so I, uh, when I was 23, I was diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And so during the time that I was on that medication, I was medically sober, is the best way to put it. I just couldn't drink because of the potential downfalls of what was on my liver. And this was, you know, 17 years ago. So back then, it was a very, very uh, sad state of affairs for NA drinking. You know, there were a couple good NA beers that I would have every now and again, but other than that, it, there really was nothing else back then. And so it's, it's crazy to see the difference now. Well, this is your world, and I'm just curious, uh, who does this movement ap appeal to? Like, what types of people are you finding are gravitating to this NA movement? Well, I think every year it becomes more and more widespread. The same way that eating vegan and vegetarian a couple times a week is becoming more and more widespread. You know, there's the, the people in recovery. That is, you know, sort of the loudest and strongest, you know, voice coming out of sort of the movement. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. And then after that, you have the younger generation is drinking significantly less. In fact, in Japan, it's such a massive movement. Major beverage uh, companies are beginning to create NA specific drinks for the Gen Zers. So mm. millennials and Gen Zers are, are sort of turning away from it more and more often. And then you just have people that are just generally careful about what they're putting in their body and then how it's making them feel. Mm. Okay, so let's get into the tasting. And I brought along a tasting buddy. This is Alejandra Spray. She helps with the nonprofit called STEM Blazers, which is all about encouraging and supporting high school girls across the metro Denver area to pursue the study of STEM, which, of course, is science, technology, engineering, and math. And, and STEM Blazers has an annual mocktail social fundraiser. So Thank thanks so you. much. And we're going to try drinks for different kinds of sober curious or sober people. So... First, the budget-conscious version. What do you have for us? All right, so we're going to start with a product called Giffard Aperitif. It's N.A. It's, it has the word syrup on the label because it's French, and that's how they refer to it. But it's, it's wow. very much a, a delicious, lightly bitter aperitif, very similar to Aperol. Already, Aperol is a low ABV product, so this is something that kind of falls perfect into that. We're gonna use two ounces of the syrup. And is that more of like a fruity? No, fruity? it's actually, it's a light bitter. Aperitif. It'd be aperitivo if it was Italian. In French, Ooh. it's aperitif. Very strong. 
it does have a, a rich flavor. Um, <laughs> then we're going to use Frexinet, which is a cava producer out of Spain. And this is a quite a lovely, sparkling, non-alcoholic. Almost looks like just your typical bottle of white wine. Yep, exactly. So it's going to be dry and crisp. Little orange. And then just a touch of soda water. All right. Let's enjoy. Very traditional Aperol spritz. And we, we have to toast. <laughs> mm, okay. Definitely sweetened up. And let us sweeten up. It looks like a holiday drink. You know, yeah, you can bright call red, and, and you got like your. Did fruit. you need to explain to anybody what you're drinking? <laughs> no, it looks no, like a great holiday it's drink. It's great. Yeah. You know, I just sip in little, a, a little bit at a time to enjoy, and then just give me a, a hit of the, the orange. Even though it's a slice, it just, I took a sip and I just right away tasted the orange slice. So it's interesting how you have different, but still there's some flavors they still come across and still strong yeah this is very refreshing and it's kind of it's the bitter is was strong but then when you added the other flavors it kind of lightened up that bitter yeah and it's it it made it much lighter yeah absolutely um and it yeah it it still does stay in that realm of 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 a party and don't feel weird about finishing these because there's no alcohol in them i actually (laughs) am enjoying this really all right adam so can you make me one of your favorite na drinks yeah, absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll do like a pineapple margarita take with a, a product called Jalisco 55. Wait a minute. I recognize that name, Jalisco. That's my hometown. I was born in Jalisco. That's one of the states in Mexico and Guadalajara, where most of the tequila comes from. So that's interesting to know there's a non-alcoholic margarita-like mix out there with the name of Jalisco. And what's interesting is the, the label says spiritless. <laughs> I like that. But not flavorless. No, definitely not flavorless. And I think that's the key is you want that flavor. You still want something fun and interesting to drink, just not alcohol. Wow, I see the tahini on the rim. Yeah, and then I'm going to use a little tahini for the rim. Just, you know, bring in sweet, salty, spicy. So I use two ounces of the Jalisco. 55, Mm. and then three quarters of an ounce of fresh lime juice. All right. Half an ounce of pineapple juice. We're smiling over here. (laughs) And then a little bit of uh, agave syrup. No margarita is complete without a little lime. Yes. Cheers. Cheers, it is. Ooh, it's got a lot of kick. (laughs) A lot of kick. What is the kick? The tajin? Yeah. Oh, if you're born in Mexico, tajin is part of your (laughs) childhood. So, no. Well, I'm from Louisiana. Does uh, cayenne (laughs) pepper count? (laughs) You should. I can see what this is your favorite. It's really good. And I will say it's very convincing. A margarita, it really looks like. You can fool the best Mexican person here with this drink. <laughs> you heard it here first from Allie. <laughs> from the land of uh, where the mariachi and tequila comes from. Ah. So, Adam, like, what's your thoughts on how, like, the whiskey type or tequila type products are progressing in terms of taste? 
the one-for-ones for the aperitifs and the amaros and, and sort of the, the different liqueurs are very, very close to their full spirit sort mm. of cousins. With the straight spirits, the one-for-ones, the flavor profile isn't necessarily for sipping. They're for mixing because then when you mix it, you hit those notes that they're trying to put into that product. So right now, and, and we're not sure what will happen in the next five years, right? But right now there's not, say, a bourbon, not a spirit-free bourbon that you're going to sit and sip and go, my goodness, how is that not, you know, a Kentucky bourbon? They're not there yet. However, they do have oak-flavored, spirit-free products that you can mix into cocktails that would be a whiskey cocktail. And that's where you're going to hit on those flavor profiles and create something that's got a greater depth of flavor as opposed to something that's just sort of, you know, juice in a glass or whatever. Yeah, it's been interesting. I, I just see so many parallels to the vegan slash vegetarian world because, you know, there are people who want a completely like vegetable kind of dish. And then there are people who actually want to replicate the sense of eating meat or certain, you know, chicken and things like that. So would you say there are kind of two groups in this movement, like some people who want to actually replicate the flavor and experience of drinking alcohol and those who, you know, maybe it's triggering for them or maybe they just want to try something completely different that does not remind them of any particular alcohol that they've had. Yeah, and that's... You're, you're really touching on it. There is that part of the sober community that would get triggered by certain products mm. that just are just too close for them. It is interesting to be conscious about having both offerings that just sort of don't fall into that category. Like they don't taste like, you know, a tequila soda or something like that. But then there's the ones that that do because, you know, you get both types of, of drinkers. And so it's trying to appeal to that broader sense and just being conscious and caring. So if a person were trying to specifically avoid anything that does remind them or is very closely resembled to alcohol, how would you know what to order? Like, or is there a way to distinguish, like, types of NA products? The best place to start for people would be seeing things that, for example, here are two very specific products that mm-hmm. are that really don't fall into the same category as like an NA gin or something like this. This is Wilderton. It's non-alcoholic botanical spirit. It has some similarities to some full spirit products, but not in the sense of what is going to make you go, oh my goodness, this tastes like anything I'm used to drinking. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one called the Pathfinder. It's a hemp and root, N.A., spiritless, packed full of flavor. And, and it's about looking for those things, the nootropics. Those are products that aren't trying to be that tequila, that gin. And that's where most people that are trying to stay away from something but want a lot of flavor, that's where you'll find yourself going. All right, so, Allie, we have to try these two products. So. And we always toast. Toast. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's an interesting... I just like Adam said, by themselves are not really that that you will put well, it and enjoy it like a shot. 
Like when you they do, come together, it, but it's the, the that's combination. The, yeah. You know, Allie, you mentioned that your daughter, Nicole, loves to make mocktails yes. or non-alcoholic drinks. And, um, and you kind of, enjoy, it's kind of been like a bonding thing for you all to make drinks together. It's, it's our thing. So for dinner, obviously she cannot drink. Uh, she's not in drinking age. So she will mix uh, soda water and cranberry juice. And then she puts a cherry and it's our drink. So <laughs> before dinner, she's like, do you want to split our drink? And I say, yes. Yeah. So she's always in charge of mixing our drink. And we feel fancy. I also like what Adam was talking about, how the flavors are evolving. In Mexico, we have, and during Christmas, we have drinks based on fruits. and It's a punch. And there's a lot of cloves, cinnamon on it. So it's, I think it's something that it has been there. But people have not really recognized them as non-alcoholic drinks, too. I think that's kind of what this is also about. It's, it's the holiday season, which is why we're talking about this. But it's really about bonding and spending time with people and having a good time. And you should not have to be excluded if you don't drink. So really what you're describing with your daughter is really what this is about. It's about people wanting to participate. It's the memories for me uh, as she's thinking of moving out for college. Is the memory that I will have that I, every time I see a soda water and cranberries is our thing together, right? Exactly. And as uh, we talked about, you know, a lot of cultures have non-alcoholic drinks that are very flavorful and fun and festive, and you can partake in those during the holiday season. And also, um, I understand there's a ready-to-drink mocktails market as well. You'll find a lot of stuff in can. A lot of the canned ones have CBD in them to try to give you, you know, some sort of feeling out of it. And just reading the labels will give you an idea of what you're about to get into. So Adam, what are your favorite non-alcoholic beers? Yeah, so this is the one non-alcoholic drinking area that is probably the best place to find flavor, consistency, quality across the board. So I'm gonna take you through three different styles of NA beers and I traditionally am a IPA drinker. In my everyday life, if I'm having a beer, it's gonna be traditionally an IPA. However, when it comes to non-alcoholic beers, which I drink quite often, I'm much more of a, a light Pilsner drinker or a wheat beer drinker. The IPAs, let's just say that they're not quite as good as, in my opinion, as the wheats and the Pilsners. So the first beer I'm pouring for you two is Heineken Zero Zero. 0.0% alcohol. I just read a funny article from a woman in Australia who went to have, buy an NA six-pack of beer, didn't have her ID on her, and couldn't get a 0.0% alcohol beer. The reason that you get carded for these is because these are marketed towards adults as a 21-plus beverage. Really? So you, without any alcohol, it's because of the, how the marketing works, not the fact that there's actually any alcohol in it. I would say it would take the traditional beer drinker, three Heineken Zero Zeros, to recognize there's no alcohol in it because <laughs> they wouldn't have been feeling anything after the third. But anyways, I think this is a very, very good uh, one for one. It, and it's in the signature green bottle? I mean, it's... <laughs> absolutely. And I'll tell you, zero, Heineken Zero Zero has been so successful that Budweiser has now released a Zero Zero and so has Stella. And they're all, in this world, very, very good. They even have that classic kind of skunky smell that you're, that you're used to having. So anyways, the next is called Surya, cereal. 
C-E-R-I-A. Um, it was actually started by the person that produced Blue Moon. This is a wheat beer, non-alcoholic. Allie? So I have a question for those people that have some allergies and celiac, celiac disease. How does these drinks, because they still might have some of those components that triggers their allergies, correct? I do believe there are a couple gluten-reduced NA beers. So what do you think, Ellie? Are you a big beer drinker? Not at all, even if it's not alcoholic. <laughs> Pass. I have to, I I have to my, admit that. But. I stick with my wannabe margarita with tajin. But the, the nice thing is, is even though you aren't beer drinkers, you can still see that these are still full-flavored. Well, Allie, thanks so much for joining me today. You are an awesome taster, co-taster, co-pilot, wingman, all of that. And shout out to your 17-year-old daughter, Nicole, for getting you into this movement. <laughs> thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you, Adam. And thank you for educating us in what is not just a movement, but it's what is going to be also a lifestyle for some people, right? Regardless of their motives, but it's if you are pregnant or it's in your health-wise, but it's also going to be more how people have more options to how they enjoy and socialize with their friends. Now, that was Alejandra Spray. She is on the executive board for a Colorado nonprofit known as STEM Blazers, which encourages and supports high school girls in the metro Denver area to pursue the study of STEM, which, of course, is science, technology, engineering, and math. STEM Blazers holds an annual mocktails social fundraiser, and you may learn more about the organization and the work that they do at stemblazers.org. Allie and I were here today with Adam Hodak, the new CEO of Awake Denver, which opened as the city's first sober bar in 2020. It's closed temporarily right now while they look for a new space. So we met up at Adam's other restaurant, The L, on Broadway. Get his recipes and see his picks for off-the-shelf products at CPR.org. When we come back, she was inspired by African rhythms and electronic instruments, one of the Colorado artists in the spotlight this month. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Ellis Meredith grew up steeped in women's activism as the daughter of a well-known Montana suffragette. In Denver, she worked at the Rocky Mountain News, first as a proofreader, then as a political journalist. At a time when women couldn't vote, she advocated for women's rights in her column, Women's World. In 1893, Ellis Meredith met Susan B. Anthony and asked her help to get Colorado women the right to vote. If Colorado goes for a woman's suffrage, she said, you may count on a landslide in that direction throughout the West. Just a few months later, Colorado women did gain the right to vote. They used it to enact child labor laws, an eight-hour workday, and child abuse and negligence laws. Called the Susan B. Anthony of Colorado, Ellis Meredith went on to campaign for women's suffrage nationwide and in 1910 defeated seven men to become Denver's first female elected official, the city election commissioner. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With support from Sheets and Giggles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Gabrielle Watson wants to make your body move and your heart beat faster. In fact, when she makes music, she thinks of a time long ago when people gathered around a fire dancing and drumming. It's that idea that inspired her stage name, A Hundred Drums. (laughs) 
Watson's electronic music is inspired by African rhythms and instruments, and she's one of the Colorado artists featured this month on CPR's station, Indie 1023. Alicia Sweeney curates that list, and she shared some of the music with CPR's Nathan Heffel. We're going to hear some rock today and also a group that's collaborating with a famous performance artist. But first, we have 100 Drums. How did this project start? Yeah, so Gabby Watson is originally from California, but she's lived in Denver for about three years. Growing up, she listened to a lot of jazz and funk thanks to her mom. And as far as performing, she got her start as a DJ, and then she got really interested in indigenous hand drums and low-frequency bass and started making music in this genre that's actually called drum and bass. And that name, 100 Drums, creates quite the image, but it's not like we're actually hearing 100 drums. Yeah, that's right. It more just speaks to what inspires Gabby's music. She really loves this idea of synchronicity, drums beating together, people coming together. Live shows are very big in the electronic music world. In fact, Gabby likes to bring up something that's popular among electronic music lovers. And that is when you're in a crowd that's all dancing and moving together at the same beats per minute. There's this idea that your heart rates actually start to sync up. And for Gabby, that's a powerful way to connect with her audience. Oh, that's so fascinating. And and so is all of her music instrumental? Most of it is. But I did bring a song that 100 Drums put out earlier this year that features a Montreal artist named Saleh. This track is called If I Have To. love the slow beat here. It's very powerful, but chill too, right? I imagine being in that massive crowd, just grooving as a group. And I saw that 100 Drums has been performing at festivals all around North America, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And as Gabby's career keeps growing, she's also been speaking out more about what it's like to be a black woman in a genre that's dominated by white men. Mm. And also she says she was really inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement and recent protests against police brutality, especially because of her own experiences of injustice. And that's fueling her new music, too. Well, she definitely sounds like an artist to keep an eye on. Okay, let's change gears quite a bit. Who else you got? Sound of Honey. This is the work of singer-songwriter Emma Rose. She was born in Wisconsin, raised in Iowa until her family moved to Fort Collins. Her parents are both musicians, so it's no surprise that she's a musician, too. She now lives in Denver, and after playing in another band for a bit, she put this group together a couple years ago to bring her own music to life. That's the song See You in August by Sound of Honey. That voice! (laughs) I would definitely have this song blaring as I cruise the back roads of the Eastern Plains. It just seems to fit for a fall road trip, huh? 
Yes, she really captures that fall or autumnal vibe. Emma's singing definitely stands out. You can see her live in Denver at the Bluebird Theater on December 2nd, and she plans to release more music by the end of this year. Well, I look forward to that. Okay, next, let's pick up the energy. This is Hello Central. Yeah, spelled as one word, this band formed in Denver in 2018, and it's made up of four lifelong friends. They have this mix of alternative and pop punk. And here's a song that we're playing on Indie 1023. It's called Tidal Wave Girl. That's music by Hello Central here on CPR News. It's really catchy. Definitely. So the band independently released its first album last year. They've got some new singles trickling out, including the new one that we just heard. And Hello Central plans to keep writing music and hit the studio in the spring to record its next album. All right. Well, we have time for one more band. Who are we going to end with today? Well, this is a group originally from Fort Collins, but they're now based in New York in the Hudson Valley. They're called Sound of Series. They released their third record this summer, Emerald Sea. So, Nathan, you've heard of concept albums. Yeah. Where there's this concept or story that ties all the songs together. Maybe one of the most famous is like Pink Floyd's The Wall. Oh, totally, yeah. Well, this record from Sound of Series is a concept album. Okay, so what's the concept here? Well, this record tells the story of two deities. On the one side, you have the universe, and that perspective is actually narrated by a well-known performance artist, the grandmother of performance art for over 50 years, Marina Abramovich. Then also on this record, there's the goddess of love, Venus, sung by the group's lead vocalist, Kay. So there's this interplay between the two. A strange tune. Some small chord up in the air send you into fight. You fought your way to the zenith in your last fever rage. And that's Umbramovich talking and Kay singing, right? Yeah. That song is The Fawn by Sound of Series. And the music video for this is really beautiful, full of pink and blue pastel hues with a nod to the visual styling of uh, Bjork or Sigaros, elaborate costumes. It, it's mystical. It's, it's really very stunning. It really is. There's definitely a dreamlike quality to this video. And the band also calls itself an audiovisual project. So they put a lot of work and production value into not only their music videos, but also incorporate that into their live sets, too. It's definitely a must-watch video. Well, as always, Alicia, thank you so much for sharing some local music with us. My pleasure. Alicia Sweeney is the local music director for Colorado Public Radio's Indie 102.3. She spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Thanks for joining us today and to the team who keeps us on beat. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. 
Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.